We are in Second Chronicles, although, or I'm sorry, Second Samuel, although um, I, I, we're going to be uh, showing mostly slides of passages because we have to go a lot of places real quickly. Tonight, I'm, I, I, I try to make it a little bit of an entertainment value, some of a sermon. You're like, really? I still go to sleep on you. I understand that, but you've got to do a little bit of that. But tonight, there's just a lot of stuff, and I've I opened this up about a month ago and said, y'all study this out and grapple with this. And the number one question about 2 Samuel 24 is what we're going to deal with tonight. Uh, who made me sin? I thought about this uh, this week when I saw a picture uh, on Facebook of Hollis reading a book to Colby's class. And uh, Colby was obviously admiring, looking up to her older sister as she read this in her class at school. It looked so sweet and hugged and had these pictures. And I thought, I wonder if these two always love each other like that. Um, I know better than to ask a stupid question like that because that's just not human nature. Uh, you know, within a few hours of that, they were probably you know, hands around the neck, kind of, kind of strangle each other, because that's kind of how siblings do. But have you ever said to somebody, especially your sibling, don't make me hit you? Have you ever, have you ever said that? Don't make me hit you. That's a weird line, but it's a true line. It's like, because of the way you're treating me, I'm going to have to whoop you. You're making me whip you. It's like I'm putting the burden of this is wrong, I shouldn't do this, but the only reason I'm doing this is your fault. Who makes me sin? Do you think that's a helpful question? I, I don't know if it is or not. I don't know if you, could, if you could really, if you knew everything about the sin you commit and you could analyze how much Satan's involved, how much God's influence is involved, how much your own propensity is involved, if you could figure out exact percentages would you then eliminate your sin? No. It doesn't help at all to know that there's these other influences of you because there are all sorts of influences on your behavior and your sin. And when you sin, it's all you. Can I, I think what makes me appreciate more than anything, at the end of this sermon, here's what you're going to think. Um, while I hate sin and I'd love to eliminate it, I have this sneaky suspicion, because I know Scripture, that I will never defeat it. Do you ever feel this way? I will never actually defeat it. And I'm grateful that we do not have to. That we gather around a table to celebrate the one who saved us from it. However, he not only gave us the freedom of guilt, he broke its power. We can defeat sin in our lives, and we're supposed to strive for that. Now, there are, this, is, this is where we're going tonight because of uh, where we are. These two verses compared to each other. Here they are on the screen. 2 Samuel 24, 1, verses 1 Chronicles 21, 1. Again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. He, it's not he, it's it, it incited David against them, saying, Go, number Israel and Judah. So the setup of this story in 2 Samuel is that God is the one setting David up. Obviously, I think Chronicles is later, and Chronicles, I think, has a real struggle with that. And so it says, Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. And so we're left, how do you square this? 
How does this possibly make sense? I'm going to be asking you to call upon a lot of your Bible knowledge. I'll jog some of it, but some of it I'm just going to have to depend on you to remember. This is the Sunday night crowd. You are the Bible scholars, and so I'm depending on that. Here's explanation number one. I've got three of them. Explanation number one is that God is sovereign, and he's the explanation behind everything. Sovereignty means ultimately you're back behind everything. So... um, Uh, Whether God causes this or he allows something to happen, doesn't cause it, but he allows it, doesn't really matter. God is back behind there. Everything goes back to him. Plus you add something else to this. God cannot tempt. James chapter 1. Here's the screen. Let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no man. So he's sovereign, which means he either causes or allows all things, but he does not actively tempt a person. And yet, he can make a promise, right? There's this promise that's pretty amazing. We Christians know 1 Corinthians 10, 13, and here's what it says. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common. You're not the only one with it. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he'll provide the way of escape. You may be able to endure it. Is this absolutely true? How can God promise that nothing will come upon you that you can't endure? How can he promise that? How can he, how can he possibly know Because he's sovereign, and any temptation is an allowance. He's allowing it. There's no other way he can make a promise like this than that he is sovereign, and he's perfectly aware of what's coming upon you, and he can guarantee you he knows you, he knows the temptation, and he will make sure that nothing is so overwhelming that there's not an escape hatch. Absolutely. The only way you can make a promise like that is if you're sovereign and you control all the variables. All right. In the Jewish mind, you've got to know there were no secondary causes, and so God is behind everything, right? The implications of this um, are enormous, but first of all, you'll see this in Job, right? The story of Job, you remember this? This is You cannot deal with these two verses without going to Job. But in Job, you have um, the Satan coming up, right? And he's... He's pointing out to God how he could uh, trip up Job, and of course he doesn't, but God allows Satan to tempt Job. He allows it, the Satan. We'll get to that in a minute. But it's not just Old Testament. Look at this verse in Luke. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded, or he is asked to sift you like wheat. Satan demands to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned again, strengthen your brother. Satan, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. Satan has come and asked God to be allowed access to you, Peter. And, you're gonna, and he is going to be given access to you. And I'm praying for you and I'm working behind the scenes to help you in your recovery. Apparently... There's been a special appeal from Satan to who? It has to be God. 
to give him access to Peter. That's weird, isn't it? Strange language. Now, the problem with this, the problem with this theory, and by the way, the implications, go back to that implication sheet. Uh, yeah, keep going. I forgot even what those are. Keep going. Okay, that's, yeah, okay. So God doesn't tempt, but he knows about temptation. God allows you to be tempted, but he places limitations on it. And so God is kind of superintending it all. And the only thing that can happen to you is what he allows. That's kind of what we say in this. Here is the problem with all this theory. Here's the problem. (laughs) And this is very hard for us because of years of years of years of interpretation. Satan in the Old Testament is not the devil. Satan in the Old Testament is not the devil. He's only the devil in the New Testament. The word Satan in the Old Testament means adversary 27 times. It appears in the Old Testament, and nearly every time it's a human being fulfilling the role of adversary. There are three, maybe four times that talk about some kind of spiritual creature, but it's not the enemy of God, known as Satan, kicked out of heaven, who's become our enemy. That is not Satan in the Old Testament. We'll get to more of that in just a minute, but because of that, I don't think explanation one is the best one, although, listen, those implications we talked about, those applications of this, are true. They are true. God's sovereign. He won't allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear. So when the temptation comes, what you say to yourself is, I know I can handle this. God wouldn't allow it unless there was some way out of this. And so therefore, God has me. He's taking care of me. Okay, That's explanation number one. Explanation number two. God is sovereign. And he's for his people. But when his people get a little cocky, and have a rebellious spirit, God will work in ways to discipline them. And when he does, he often uses enemies and opposers. He will use other nations. The entire book of Habakkuk is this struggle. Habakkuk saying, God, I know your people are a little wayward right now, but how can you use the evil Babylonians? How can you in league with them, use them, subcontract with them as a holy God, some subcontract with the evil Babylonians to punish your own. How can you do that? And God says, I can do that. And he does that all the way through the Old Testament. Babylonians and Assyrians and all sorts of people. He can use godless nations to discipline his own people. And when he does, that opposing nation is often called Satan. Let me give you two. Next screen. 1 Kings chapter 1, 11 and verse 14. Actually, this is earlier, um, but it's going to develop. This is 1 Kings 11. Talking about Solomon. The Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. And they commanded him concerning this, th- this thing that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord commanded. God was angry because Solomon wasn't listening married other, God, other women, and uh, they worshiped other gods, and he, he allowed for that, and it drew his heart away from God. So what's God going to do? Next screen. And the Lord raised up a Satan in the Hebrew. He raised up an adversary against Solomon, Hadad the Edomite. 
He was of the royal house of Edom. And, and this nation comes and he really ab- abases Solomon's pride. God raises up a Satan. Satan. It's not a spiritual being, it's a human being. Then verse 23, God also raised up as a Satan, as an adversary to him, reason the son of Eliada who had fled from his master Hadazar, king of Zobah. So he raises up these two nations, right? These two kingdoms, in particular their king. And they come and they bring their armies and they fight Solomon and it hurts his cause and he's trying to get through to Solomon and abase his pride and returning back to God and get him to turn back to the God of Israel exclusively. God uses adversaries, satans, to get your attention. Hey, boy, wake up. He'll use other nations. He'll use other people. There are even times when David was this. Listen to this verse. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry. Do you remember when he was in Philistine territory for a while? He was fighting with the Philistines, and now they're finally going to go against Saul. And there's David with the Philistines going to fight against his own people headed by Saul. And the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, send the man back. They're talking to each other, and they said, send David back that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us to battle against Israel, lest in the battle he become a Satan to us. This is a perfect way to get back in with Saul. He's going to become an adversary to us. Next stream. Abishai, son of Zariah, answered, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this because he cursed the Lord's anointed? He had cursed David as David was going out of town, running from Absalom. But David said, what have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah, that you should this day be as an adversary, a Satan to me? You're being a discouragement to me. You are opposing me. All this is saying to you, a Satan in the Old Testament was any adversary, was any opponent, and it was most often, nearly overwhelmingly always, a human being who was opposing you. And so what is happening in 2 Samuel 24? When God is sitting there looking at Israel, there's something Israel's done we will never know. We have no idea what made God angry. The text doesn't say, and we cannot speculate, but in 2 Samuel 24, God is already angry with all of Israel. And so he sets up an adversary, raises up an adversary, just as he did with Solomon later on. He raises up an adversary on the horizon, and God, David is there looking at this, this enemy king. Try, gonna, he's on the horizon, he's in the, distant, he's in the near future, going to attack him. And what does David immediately do? You, every time, this is prepared for in, in Deuteronomy chapter 28, but this is over and over again with all the kings. What does God want the kings to do as soon as an enemy rises up against them? Do you remember what God wants them to do? Every time when a king rises up against you, when an army comes up against you, what I want you to do is I want you to turn to me and trust me. Don't go to other nations. Don't pay off other kings. Don't do any of that. I want you to turn to me. And so God raises up an adversary, another king who's threatening David. And what does David do? Does he run to God and say, what are we going to do? We want to be faithful. No. What he does is what most, what most human kings do. They take account of their people. Let's see what the forces that we have. Let's see if we can fight him or not. He starts thinking in human terms, not in divine terms. He's acting like a king like all the other nations is what he's doing. He had a chance. 
at this point to feel the pressure of an adversary coming and turn to God, but he didn't. He turned within and started counting his own people. And God looks at that and says, I, I am angry that you're relying on yourself and not me. That's what's happening in 2 Samuel 24. There is no Satan there. Capital S, pitchfork, and tail. David chose to respond to this like all the other nations. We saw this in Pharaoh too. We saw this in all the kings of Israel. The most famous one is Isaiah chapter 7 when God says to Ahaz, you know, I, these nations are coming up against you and if you'll just turn to me, I'm going to take care of this. I'm going to show you some amazing display. And Ahaz decides to go and pay another nation to help him instead. And God is just like, what? We don't know who the adversary is. But let me make application of this. God still disciplines us today, doesn't he? Hebrews chapter 12. God disciplines us because, y'all, we get too big for our britches. We get self-sufficient. We get prosperous. We start forgetting God, and God wishes he, wishes he could just bless us into belief, but often we don't. That blessing becomes an obstacle to him, and we get haughty, and we get human, and God disciplines us. And don't take this as punishment. He disciplines us. He wants us to mature, right? And sometimes the way he does it is by using our enemies. What does God use our enemies for in the New Testament? What does he command us to do when we have enemies? Love them. I'm going to bring, God guarantees us, I'm going to bring enemies into your life. And what I want you to do to shape you up and to make you mature is I want you to love them. They're God's instrument for you. They discipline you. They mature you. And God, if you look at the New Testament, is very interested in your maturity. He does this with Paul. You may recall in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, who put the thorn in Paul's flesh? He makes it very clear. Who put the thorn in his flesh? Who put the thorn? I need Randy Simpkins. Where is Randy? Satan did. It's a messenger of Satan. Satan put the thorn there. And then God, and then, and then Paul decides, God, please beg, take it out. And God says, no, 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 no. I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to use it for my purpose. Satan is using this thorn to discourage you and get you to give up. I'm going to put the thorn in there to get glory for myself. It's going to humble you. You've seen amazing things and experienced amazing things. And it, you're going to get too big for your britches, Paul. I'm going to leave it right there. I'm going to take what Satan puts into your life for your discouragement. I'm going to leave it in your life for your blessing and my glory. And that his glory is your top priority anyway. He disciplines us today. And if you look at 2 Corinthians 11 at all the things that Paul had endured as discipline from God, how many times is it his enemies and opposers that he faces in his ministry? Many times. God uses our opponents to stretch us. So here's what happens. David and Israel are getting too big for their britches. 
God raises up an adversary to draw them back to him, but instead of doing that, they drew him inward. He took a census. What he should have done is come to his senses. Uh, Did you get that? Yeah. What he did was he took a census, and what he should have done is come to his senses and go straight to God. And it's the same thing for you. These challenges that come up here, every time you see any kind of hardship, it is an invitation to draw near to your God who wants to put you in his arms and take care of you and be your hero. Don't turn somewhere else. Here's a time in David's own life. Listen to this. This is when he's on the run from Saul again. He comes out and he's going to speak to Saul who's hunting him down as if David is some kind of threat to him. And he says, now therefore, let my lord the king hear the words of his servant. Saul, I want to say something to you. Listen to this. He's coming after him. David's hiding in the woods somewhere. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, If God is using you to come after me, may he accept an offering. Obviously, I've done something wrong, and I'm going to make it right with God. If God has caused you to come after me, I will offer an offering because I've done something wrong, and I'm going to interpret it as his discipline. But if it's other people, and that's who it is, right? We know that. If it's other people, may they be cursed because they've driven me out of Israel from the land of my father's. Even David realizes that this could be discipline from God. And if it is, he'll act accordingly. And may we do the same thing. I really believe 1 Chronicles 21.1 should not be capital S because it's not the Satan, as in Job. It's a Satan, small s, an adversary. Why not interpret that as the other 24 times it appears that way. This is not a spiritual being. This is a human being who's presenting a threat to you and he's posing you this option of either doing it God's way or your way. And David went with his own. One other explanation, number three. This one is compelling to me but I'm going to really mess up your mind with Job here a little, okay? God is sovereign. He gives free will to his own people, and he honors it. But there's this entrance of this strange character of the Old Testament. We cannot figure out who he is. God gives you free will. You can make the choice yourself, and you are responsible for the choice you make. But he does exert some influence in your life. Job chapter 2. One and two. Have you ever wondered what Satan is doing in heaven? Have you ever wondered why God, having this council meeting in heaven, trying to side with this council of people for his cause and his glory, why is Satan given a place at the table? Is that not bizarre? Wasn't he kicked out of heaven? What's he doing being invited back? This is not an evil character. Keep going with the stuff on this one. He he introduces this guy. He is a place. While God is considering what he's going to do in the future with his servants, there's this guy. He's not the devil. 
And he's not even against God's purposes. This is one of God's servants around the table. He's trying to decide. I think this guy goes around the earth and he looks for places where God's punishment needs to go. But he's also, at least in the book of Job, he's also this guy who looks around at how he can increase the maturity of God's own people. This guy belongs in heaven. He's in God's counsel. And by the way, in Zechariah chapter 3, he appears again. He appears there again, describing him the same way. He's there, he's offering up these ideas, and sometimes God follows them, and sometimes he doesn't. I don't know who this character is, but he's an interesting phenomenon. He is God's guy. He is God's guy, and he's the overseer of punishment for those who are against God, but overseer of God's people for the purpose of their maturity. Do you think God's interested in you maturing does he want you to grow up? Yeah. He's got an agent on his council whose job is to look at your life and say, what do we need to bring into his life to deepen his or her maturity? And by the way, you can't do this without opposition. You can't do this with challenge. Do you remember what the Spirit did to Jesus right after he was baptized? The Spirit led him into the wilderness to be tempted. What? Yeah. He wanted Jesus tempted. He wanted to show that this was a different son than Adam and Israel. This was a son that even with opposition, he's going to stand with God. He wants you to be tempted. And so God has this agent on his council called the Satan. And by the way, that's exactly what it is in the Hebrew. It's the definite article, the, and Satan. It's not a Satan. It's the Satan, like it's a functionary. It's not a name. It's a function he's got. It is the most bizarre thing. And nobody, I mean, you know, what do we know about this guy? But I want to show you a couple places in the Old Testament where he shows up. Well, I don't know if it's him. The, the word's not used. But you know these weird stories. Micaiah. Does anybody remember Micaiah? I'm going to ask you to really come back to your... Listen, these are some stories we don't talk about all the time. Let's talk about Micaiah. He's a very faithful prophet of God. And here's what's happened. Jehoshaphat, Ahab and Jehoshaphat, right, are getting together, and Ahab really wants Jehoshaphat to go to war with him. And Jehoshaphat wants to go. He says, okay, you guys, uh, what I want you to do, is it Jehoshaphat, Jehoahaz? I just went blank on his name. Anyway, he wants them to go to war with him. Israel and, and Judah are going to join back together and fight a war, but the king of Judah wants to, you know, I think you need to ask the prophets of God first. Just follow with the story for a minute. And so they get all these prophets, some 400 prophets together, and they all say, yeah, 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 you need to go. You need to go to war. You need to go to war. This is good. And, and, but, Jehoshaphat, but, but the king of Judah, whatever his name is, the king of Judah, Jehoshaphat, thank you. Judah, uh, the king of Judah, Jehoshaphat, um, says, now hold on just a minute. I, I have a funny feeling these prophets aren't really truthful. They're just, it's a party line here. I, is there not a prophet of God we can talk to? And do you remember what the king said? Yeah, there is. But I don't like him, and he don't like me, and every time he opens his mouth, he's criticizing me. Jehoshaphat says, well, let's go ask him. It's a great, great thing. So while they send a servant to go get Jehoshaphat, uh, go hit, get Mahiah, I hope you read this for yourself, these names, okay? 
He goes to get Micaiah, and Micaiah starts coming. This guy says, hey, listen, all the prophets have said the same thing. Go to war, go to war. So we really, just go ahead and go with it. And Micaiah says, I'm going to tell him exactly what God tells me. Okay. He goes down, and the king says, should we go to war? And Micaiah says, yep. And it, make, it throws the king off. What? All these years you hated my, and now you're telling me to go? Well, let me tell you why I'm going to tell you to go, because they're going to come back without you. They're going to be like a sheep without a shepherd because you're dying today. Oh, see, told you so. Now, Micaiah then goes on. He had, these prophets see this, he was given a special vision of this divine counsel. And listen to him. Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the hosts of heaven standing beside him on his right hand and on his left. This is the divine counsel, the Job divine counsel, the Hezekiah divine counsel. Once in a while, we are given a glimpse of it. It's a profound blessing for us to see this. And the Lord said to all these, this sounds like the screw tape letters for those of you who are C.S. Lewis fans, right? And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? How are we going to get him to go? He needs to go. It's time. You know where everybody says, the Lord has a time for you? Well, for Ahab it was true. This is his time, right? Who's going to do that? One of them said one thing, another said another, and God's like, nah, I don't really like it. This is a weird view of God, right? Ah, no, I don't like that. I don't like that. And then a spirit, one of those, one of those angelic hosts, it's bizarre, y'all, speaks up and says, I'll do it. Next screen. And the Lord said to him, okay, how are you going to do it? I hate saying that because it seems like God would say, how art thou going to do it? Or something like that. How are you going to do this? And he said, I'll go out. I will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. I am going to inspire them to lie. One of God's heavenly hosts that surround his council table is going to go into the false prophets and lie. And he said, you're to entice him, you're going to succeed. Go out and do this. And so the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of all these your prophets. Does that present a quandary for you about God just a little bit? God using lying? <laughs> Ask Terry about that in class Wednesday night, will you please? And that's what happens. Micaiah comes. He tells the truth. He says the same thing as the false prophets, but they're lying. He's telling the truth, even though it's the same thing. <laughs> is that, that's brilliant. Who is this guy? Who is this spirit sent from God's presence to come down here to lie, to influence somebody, to do something like this. Does he still operate like this? Ah, I don't know. But you know another one like this. I know we're going too long, but this story's too good not to tell. 
It's in Numbers chapter 22. God's anger was kindled because he went. We're talking Balaam now. This is the story just like the one where God's anger was kindled against Balaam. Do you remember why God was mad at Balaam? This is strange too. Okay, let's set this, this story up. Balaam wants to go uh, and, and do the false prophet. You know, and, and God says, no, don't go. Well, then he prays the next night, can I go? Well, I just told you no, but I'll let you go now. So God says no, and then he says, you can, but you can only say what I tell you. And then Balaam goes, but God's still mad at him for going, even though he's the one who gave him permission to go. Is this not giving you a headache? And the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way, listen to this, as his adversary. Guess what word that is? Satan. The angel of the Lord was the Satan. His adversary, standing in the way. And the donkey, you know what happens to the donkey. The two servants, you remember that story. The angel of the Lord is his adversary, right? So I wonder, when God's anger incited David to count, is there any way to know if it might be possible this is a spiritual being rather than a human being? Is there any other character in the 2 Samuel 24 story that could be the Satan? Well, later down in the story, you remember, right? God says, I'm going to give you three choices of your punishment. Three years, three months, three days. Lord sent pestilence from Israel. And at first you think, well, God's just sending this plague that's going to go like COVID, right? And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba, 70,000 men. And when the angel, what? Whoa, 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 whoa. Angel? Where did the angel come from? There was no angel anywhere. All of a sudden, out of nowhere comes this angel. Stretched out his hand toward Jerusalem, destroyed. The Lord relented from calamity, said to the angel who was making destruction among the people, that's enough, stay your hand. The angel of the Lord. We're not just talking about any old angel. This is the angel of the Lord. And I will just tell you a shortcut. I can't prove this. That's Jesus. Standing there. Question. If what influenced David to count was a supernatural being, could it have been the angel of the Lord, just like with Naaman? I'm sorry, Balaam. Could it have been? Next screen. And when Balaam finally saw the angel, he fell down at his face. He proclaimed, I have sinned, right? What did David do when he saw the angel? Behold, I have sinned. This was the correction, and it was an angel who did it. The stories are very similar in the fact that God is kind of like God is enticing, but he's not causing, he's permitting, but he's not doing it. It's really strange, but in all that, he sends this adversary for both one of them, this opposition to him to, that, that would cause him to go one way or the other, and when he chooses the wrong way, it's sin, and God punishes, and he punishes through the same adversary he sent to correct. I just wonder... I just wonder if this is a spiritual being. Really, The only real difference between explanation two and three is that explanation two says it's a human opponent that God raises up, which he does often. And this third explanation is it's a spiritual opponent that's on God's side who's arranging a test that David fails. I don't know what to make of all these. I go for explanation to myself. I think it's a human being God uses. 
and it leads David to make the wrong decision. But regardless, the, the, the applications for us from this as we wrap up is this. God truly is sovereign. He does allow all sorts of influences, right? But he superintends all things to serve his purposes. Some things he causes, some things he just allows. And can I tell you, this doesn't let God off the hook. This is what leads to psalms. This is why when psalms that the, the psalmist raises his fist against God and say, why, why, why? And we say, well, there's all sorts of reasons why. Yeah, there might be, but I, I'm, I'm, I, God is superintending all things. And if he's big enough to do that, he's big enough to take your prayer. So you see, I can say to a family uh, uh, in Kennet that uh, had a baby and it was very touch and go because they don't know if it's strong enough. This was this ended last night. And they have this baby and they knew it was bad health and they were just praying that there's enough health for them to do the amazing surgeries that it's going to take to keep her alive. The baby is born and there are literally thousands of people praying for this baby, wrestling in prayer. I'm promising you there were tears and sweat into this just like with Maya and others that you find because this is just something very delicate. And last night, she was born this past week. They can't do the surgery. She breathed her last, last night. Did God do it or just allow it? As a parent in that spot, does it make any difference? Does it make any difference? His sovereignty puts him on the hook in some sense. And our maturity and our ability to deal with this and grapple with a God of the universe is, is not for easy things. But i, I got to tell you, sometimes the way we do this is very difficult. We go, praise God that he answered this prayer. And over here you got somebody saying, why didn't he answer mine? And we come up with ways, well, we, they're up in heaven, so he answered it. You can't discourage a Christian, can you? Because no matter what ends up happening, we let God off the hook. No, i got to tell you, God's sovereign. He's sovereign. And when you have a struggle, take it to him. And this is why when trouble comes, he is the first place you should go. But there are many other influences in our lives, too. That's the second thing of this. God is exerting his own influence through the scriptures, through his Holy Spirit who's in you, through the angelic host that God sends to help his servants. There are influences trying to get you to, 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 to do good. There are also, as you well know, evil influences in the air around us. Now, you're going to say, that's weird. I know we Americans don't talk like this. We moderns don't talk like this. We science people don't talk about this. But Scripture is very liberal in talking about this, and they are around us, and they're exerting their influence on us all the time. You must be aware of them, but you must not be overwhelmed by this conversation. Because Jesus has defeated them all. And as long as you're right with Jesus, you do not have to worry about them, but you do have to be aware of them. And then it leads to the third thing. You have a free will, and when you sin, it's your fault. 
however these influences entice you or present you options some are good some are bad whatever what you choose is you so judas was he responsible for the decision to betray jesus yes he was was peter responsible for denying jesus yes he was was satan involved we know full well he was we know full well he was but when you sin don't point fingers and don't look around at you made me do this you made me do this that made me do this listen you did this and what god wants to say to us through the story of david is this is the proper way to repent it is my fault and i want to repent please forgive me lord that's what you do because he's sovereign we turn to him in trouble and when we don't we turn to something else and we sin the right posture is to go to god all the time all the time that's the number one best response for any believer and if you are a person who struggles with sin it's your struggle it's your responsibility and it's your repentance that's called for Whew. That's a lot of stuff, isn't it? You can choose explanation one, two, and three. I personally choose explanation number two, but they're all available. I think the first one's a little questionable, but it's traditional. But all of them end up leading to this place right here, however fancy you want to get. There's anyone. You struggle with why things happen and why you've chosen wrongly listen look in the mirror take responsibility and go to your father he will forgive you you know already he will and he will embrace you and try to lead you if you'll let him and this morning this evening if anyone needs to respond make it known as we stand and as we sing